Matthew 27, and we're going to read from verse 39 to 54. Verse 39. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, You that destroyest the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour... There was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calls for Elijah. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us understanding hearts instead of stubborn hearts and calloused hearts. We pray that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see this amazing event. Lord, thank you that we can together meditate upon this. And we pray that you would help us to do that this morning and speak to each one of us through your word. Thank you that we can meditate on this. Thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit to understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, while it is... It's impossible to be completely accurate without careful records. It is possible to measure time using human generations. Not, you can't be uh, completely accurate unless you have those careful records. But we can generally do so with human generations. A human generation would be the offspring. Um, I'm my father's son. So I'm one generation removed from my dad. You get the idea. For example, um, if we were to go back from today to the American Revolution, we would go back roughly about seven or eight generations. So you have me, my father, my grandfather, 
my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, my great-great-great-grandfather, and my great-great-great-grandfather was living at the time of the American Revolution. Our generation, roughly speaking, is usually about 30 years. So we can roughly measure time by human generations. It's been about 2,000 years since Jesus Christ. So how many generations has it been since Jesus Christ? Well, if we take 2,000 years and we divide it by 30, we roughly come out to about 66 generations. So there's been about 66 people in your family all the way back to the time of Jesus. 66 generations. In the first chapter of Matthew, where we do have careful records, Matthew tells us that from Abraham to Jesus was 42 generations. From Abraham to Jesus. And if you remember, Matthew breaks that into three sections. He says there was 14 generations from Abraham to David. There was 14 generations from David to the Babylonian captivity. And there was 14 generations from the Babylonian captivity to Jesus. 42 in total. If you go to the book of Genesis and you look at the genealogies, uh, you can count them from Adam to Abraham. Adam begat Seth, and Seth begat Enos, and on and on we go. And you can count from Adam to Abraham 20 generations. 20 generations from Adam to Abraham. So here's the total of generations, roughly, this isn't accurate completely, from the creation of the world, 20 plus 42 plus 66 equals 128 since the creation of the world, 128 generations. So, 128 generations means Adam was your great, great, great... I won't do that to you. (laughs) Great to the power of 128. Our generation is the latest of roughly 128 generations since the creation of the world. And every generation that that has been has passed away like grass. Just like the Bible says, hasn't it? Just like grass. They blossom, they bloom, they wither, they die, they're gone. And then the next generation of grass appears. And what's going to happen to that generation of grass? Same thing. And what about the next generation of grass? It's happened 128 times. And so, unless Jesus Christ returns, our generation, roughly 128 generations removed from creation, will also wither like grass and we will die. And then the next generation will come after us. All flesh is as grass and the glory of the grass, a glory of man like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord endures forever. A lot of people have lived on this earth and a lot of people have lived and died. And most people who have died on our planet have passed away from the planet without much notice. By man, anyway. God notices even when the sparrows fall. But for the vast majority of mankind, most people, even you and I, all of us, when we die, are going to pass without much notice. We'll get our probably an obituary in the local newspaper, right? And there'll be some friends and family that'll come to our funeral. And we'll be put in the grave and some family might come and visit that every now and again. And eventually we'll be forgotten. Not remembered. 
Unless you go to the archives and look up our obituary, but who's going to do that, right? And even famous people, even celebrities, eventually pass into obscurity as well. How many of, how many of you know the great celebrities of, this, of the, uh, let's say, 1823? Who's the great celebrities? I can just pick a random date. We don't know, right? Even, the, even they become and, and disappear into obscurity. But there's one person and his death that will never pass in to obscurity. And his death was not a death that passed unnoticed by man. And the world will never be able to forget his death. And who am I referring to? Christ Jesus. Because today we are and we've been looking at the death of Christ. The world will not be able to forget. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus' death. And Jesus is the most famous person who's ever walked the face of the earth. He's not in obscurity. Even in the least, he hasn't passed away like grass. And for all eternity, when we go to heaven, when we pass on into the next age, who will we be remembering? Who will we be rejoicing in? Who will we be celebrating? Jesus. The Lamb who is slain will be remembering His person, will be seeing His person, and will be celebrating His death. Christ and His death is heaven's theme. Heaven's theme. No little obituary here. You see, because the death of Christ was not a grass withering and a flower fading, was it? The death of Christ was not a flower fading. It would be more appropriate to say that the death of Christ was like a mighty oak of righteousness that was felled by the axe of God's wrath. We all are like grass. We bloom and we die. But Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus was righteous. And were it not for the wrath of God, and were it not for God bruising His Son, that oak of righteousness would never have died. Heaven's theme, the death of Christ. If you want to spend your life upon that which has permanent value and meaning, then you spend it contemplating the death of Christ. Because that's what you're going to be doing in heaven, are we not? Contemplating and celebrating the death of Christ. If you want to spend your life in a meaningful way, contemplate, celebrate, orient your life around the death of Christ. Do you need joy in your life? Do you need peace in your life? Do you need rest in your life? Contemplate the death of Christ. The death of Christ is the place of our peace, is the place of our rest, is the place where we encounter God once and for all. I'd like to read you a quote. An English clergyman from the 1800s, John Engel James, says this, the study of everything that stands connected with the death of Christ, whether it be in the types of the ceremonial law, the predictions of the prophets, the narratives of the gospel, the doctrines of the epistles, or the sublime, sublime vision of the apocalypse, this is the food of the soul, the manna from heaven, the bread of life. This is meat indeed and drink indeed. Do you believe that? that the death of Christ is the food 
for the soul. Jesus said his, his life was meat indeed and drink indeed. The generations, they grow, they die, and they perish. But those who eat of this bread will live forever. Amen? Any generation, any person, any generation who does not eat of the bread of the Son of God that He gives, who does not feast upon the death of Christ, will perish into obscurity and everlasting darkness. Our generation is now, and we too must eat to live. So this morning, let us contemplate the death of Christ. The text that we read resumes the narrative, and Jesus has just been lifted up upon the cross. In John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus says that as Moses was lifted up, as Moses lifted up, excuse me, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, all of those grass that are dying, any one of them, any little blade who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is why Jesus has been lifted up upon the cross. Jesus himself tells us, just like Moses did it, so Christ will be lifted up because God so loves the world. Jesus is lifted up upon the cross because of the love of God. It is because of love that he is here, nailed to this cross. But what we see is that those who are watching him, they don't know that. They don't realize that he's there because God loves them and has lifted him up so that they could see him and be saved. And they're seeing him and they're not understanding. In verse 39, we see the general attitude of the public. We see those who are walking by. These are just common people now who are walking by. Jesus was a well-known person in those days and they, they see him hanging there. They maybe have seen him preach before. And now they're seeing him on the cross. They see an accusation over his head. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And they wag their heads, meaning when they look at him, they shake their head. Have you ever done that? Have you ever seen something and you just, and you just shake your head? It communicates a lot, doesn't it? And you can hear the disdain in their voices. In verse 40, You who destroyest the temple and buildest it again in three days, Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. They're disgusted by Jesus being on the cross. Now this saying of his, wasn't really, it, was a, it was not truly a saying of his, right? Jesus didn't say he was going to destroy the temple. But whatever it may be, this saying must have spread widely. People knew about it. But the sight of Jesus on the cross was enough for these people to know that he wasn't who he said he was in their minds. Well, there's Jesus. And the fact that he's on the, pro- on the cross proves he's not the Son of God. You claimed power. You claimed to be the Son of God. You claimed to be the King of the Jews. You claimed to even destroy the temple and be able to build it in three days. You claimed power. Well, where is it? Look at you now. There's no power here. You're helpless. At the hands of the Romans, the King of Israel... 
They thought that him being on the cross is argument enough. Perhaps they felt betrayed by him. Perhaps those who once were excited about the possibility of Christ being the Messiah felt betrayed now that they saw him hanging there. In verse 41 to 43, we see also the chief priests and the leaders of Israel mocking Jesus and deriding him. Except notice that the chief priests don't address Jesus directly. They don't speak directly to Jesus like the common people. They actually are speaking to the common people. They turn their words to the crowds and the onlookers who are watching and are justifying their own behavior to the crowds. And they try to sound fair about it. And they say in verse 42, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Sounds fair. At least they're trying to sound fair. But there's sarcasm here. He delivered others, then he should be able to deliver himself. If he doesn't deliver himself, then he didn't really deliver anyone at all. And we will believe in him if he comes down from the cross. Is that a true statement? They are lying. Because later, when Jesus accomplishes an even greater feat, not coming down from the cross, but coming out of the grave, they don't believe, do they? So they're lying, but they're saving their face before the crowds, saying, yes, look, we did the right thing, didn't we? Because he's not coming down. In verse 43, they mock him another way. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him now. If God wants him, if God really wants him. You see, Jesus, throughout his ministry, claimed a special relationship with the Father. And this, of course, perturbed the leaders of Israel greatly. And so now what they're saying is, you claimed a special relationship with God, so if God really is that close to you, and if he really loves you, and if he really wants you, then surely he'll deliver you. Surely God is able to deliver you. Let him deliver you, and we'll believe. In this is a challenge. Whether you are delivered by God or not proves whether your relationship with God is what you say it is. Whether you are delivered by God or not will prove to us that, you really, that he really does love you, that you really are that close. And amazingly, even the robbers next to Jesus, from one side and the other on his right hand and his left, say the same things to him. Mocked from all sides. Now let me ask you, who, do, who does this sound like? Who do these words sound like? Does it ring a bell? Does it, not, does it not sound like Satan? If you are the Son of God, if you are the King of Israel, if God really does want you and love you, then let him deliver you right now. Come down from the cross. Turn the rocks into bread. Jump off the tip of the temple, right? If you really are. Three ifs we find here in this passage, where Satan, speaking through these men, are questioning Jesus' identity and questioning God's relationship with Jesus, putting his trust in God to the test. If God is truly for you, Jesus, why are you here? Maybe you aren't his son. 
Satan does the same things with us, we should learn a lesson in the way Satan tempted Christ in that Satan will use situations that we're in in trials and struggles and what seems like abandonment from God and say, are you really saved? Are you really a child of God? Are you really on God's good side? Right? Doesn't he do that? But here's the irony. Here's the great, the, the entire passion narrative is ironic. And here's the irony, brothers and sisters. It is precisely because Jesus is the Son of God that he doesn't come down from the cross. Right? If you are the Son of God, come down. And it's the exact opposite of what they think. Why? Because Jesus is on the cross in obedience to the Father. Because Jesus is on the cross because he knows his Father. Jesus doesn't do anything but what he sees the Father doing. He doesn't do anything but what the Father tells him to do. And Jesus is on the cross because he knows God, he knows God's will, he knows God's righteousness, he knows God's love, he knows what the Father wants. Their understanding of the cross was completely the opposite of the true understanding of the cross. Or in the words of Jesus to Peter, when Satan spoke through Peter in Matthew chapter 16 and said, Not so, Lord, may it never be that you'll be crucified. He said, You do not have in mind the things that be of God, but you have in mind the things that be of man. They're speaking ignorantly. See, people today also have ignorant thoughts about God. Here's a, here's a thought about God that is false. That is the things of man, not the things of God. Well, if God is all good, why doesn't he just stop all suffering? Have you ever heard people say that? If there is a God and he's all powerful and he's all good, then he should just stop all suffering. That thought is a thought of man and not a thought of God. God should just stop all suffering. Hold on a second. Why do we suffer? Isn't there a reason for suffering? Your question sounds like suffering is arbitrary and has no meaning. It's just this cruel trick God's playing on everybody. Why do we suffer, according to Scripture, according to God's thoughts? Because of our sin. The world is fallen and cursed because of sin. And so there is suffering in this world. Here's another thought that's false. If you were really a good person, God would keep you from suffering. Okay, let's, let's grant that all suffering is because of sin. Okay, but if you stop being a sinner and you do all the right things and you get on God's good side, then he's going to protect you from car accidents. He's going to protect you from the bad guys. He's going to protect, he's going to bless you. Everything's going to go good in your life because you're a good person. Also, a thought of man. And this is really the thought that the Crowds and the chief priests are speaking to Jesus. Yeah, if you're really on God's good side, and if you're really a good, righteous person, if you're really the Messiah, then you should not be on that cross. What they fail to see is God's thinking concerning righteousness and concerning sin. Here's God's thought. There is a need for atonement. There is a need for the Messiah to die. And they don't understand that. Why would the Messiah die? 
Well, let me tell you why the Messiah would die. Because if the Messiah didn't die, you would perish eternally. How can that be? Because you are unrighteous. Because the law requires perfection and you don't give God the obedience that he has required. You are a sinner. And if the Messiah doesn't die, you will not be saved. That's completely over their head. They don't get that. They don't see the need for atonement. They don't see that they're hating the truth of righteousness. And they don't see that God is in that very moment loving them. God is in that very moment, in that very act of the crucifixion of Christ. He is loving them so that they will not perish. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that on the one hand, it would have been so easy for Jesus to come off of that cross. You know, they're mocking him and saying, if you are the Son of God, come down. It would be so easy for him to come down. Remember Jesus said, I have a legion of angels at my disposal. It would have been as easy as wiggling your pinky finger for him to come off of that cross. He's pinned there by the nails. The nails are not keeping him there. It would have been so easy. He just would have thought it and he would have come off the cross just like that. He was that powerful and nothing could stop his will. So on the one hand, it would have been so easy for the Christ to come off the cross. And on the other hand, it was impossible for him to come off the cross. But not impossible because of the nails. It wasn't a, Jesus saying, yeah, I know, guys, I really want to get off of this cross, but I can't. Notice the nails in my hands. My... Oh, the nails were nothing. It was impossible for him to come off the cross because of the love of God that was fixing him there. Because Jesus was obeying the Father. Because Jesus was the express image of the Father. And because the Father loved the world, Jesus could not have come off of the cross. Let us not see a physical limitation here, but a limitation based upon the will and the love of God for these people that are mocking him at that moment. Jesus is on the tree because of the nails of love, so to speak. God is on the tree. And in Jesus we see God and what God is like. Enduring pain and mocking and misrepresentation all for us sinners because he loves us. And truly that tree is a cursed place. It was not a good place. It was a place of sin and suffering for sin and darkness. But it is just because it is that it is just because Jesus didn't come out of the place that everyone knew was a bad place that the tree has become a tree of life for us who believe. Verse 45, Matthew tells us that supernatural darkness came over the land. This darkness is not to be explained by any natural phenomenon like a solar eclipse. People have often tried to explain this darkness in some natural way. But this was supernatural darkness. You could not have a solar eclipse during the Passover time because the Passover time was during full moon and you cannot have a solar eclipse during full moon. This was supernatural darkness on par with 
the darkness that overcame Egypt in the days of the Exodus, and the darkness that will surround the earth right before the second coming of Christ. Even nature is affected by her creator's commotion. God is doing something so profound that creation is drawn into it. Creation is testifying that something enormous is taking place and transpiring on the cross. Darkness points, of course, to the judgment of God against sin and the taking away of that which is good, the taking away of light and life. John Gill says it was the eclipse of the Son of Righteousness. For he who knew no sin was made sin for us. For six long hours, Jesus hung upon the cross, bearing our sin in his own body on the tree. And we ought to meditate upon this with reverence and silent wonder that he hung there on the cross for six hours, bearing my sin and bearing your sin in darkness as nature turns off the lights. There's really no words for this. We should wonder. In verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus at last speaks. It's interesting that the only word from the cross recorded in Matthew and Mark is this. We have no other words from the cross in the Gospel of Matthew nor the Gospel of Mark. His other sayings that we are familiar with, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Or when he looks to the, the robber on one side who has had a change of heart and seeing all, these, all, all the things that have been going on, today you will be with me in paradise. He's already spoken those much earlier. But Matthew and Mark record only this solitary saying from the cross. And the Greek word that Matthew uses when it says that Jesus cried with a loud voice, the word cried, anabao, the only time it is used in the entire Bible is here, the word cried. Artie France commenting on this word says, it is a strong verb indicating powerful emotion or appeal to God. This is no dispassionate theological statement, but an agonized expression of a real sense of alienation reflecting the full meaning of Jesus' death. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. We must pause and muster our attention upon this phrase. Did you know that this saying of Jesus began Martin Luther's journey out of darkness and into light. The great reformer, whose the, the torch that he lit in the days of the Reformation still shines brightly today. And it was this saying that began Luther's journey out of the darkness of Catholicism and the ignorance of the grace of God into the brilliant light of the truth of righteousness through faith. Because when Luther read this, as he was studying the Psalms, and he came to Psalm 22, 
And this is a quotation from the first verse of Psalm 22. And he knew that it was speaking of Jesus because Jesus spoke this from the cross. Luther was struck by it and said, how is it that the sinless Son of God uttered these words and these words are words that I relate to as a sinner when I'm feeling alienated from God because of my sin? How is that? Luther read this and says, yes, this is what I feel. This is how I feel when I reflect upon my sin and God's righteous holiness. I feel abandoned by God. And why is he, the sinless one, experiencing what I do? Luther, for the first time, related to Jesus. Or perhaps Jesus related to Luther. Because Jesus is, as Luther rightly saw, How is it that he's experiencing what I experience? Jesus is indeed experiencing what Luther and what you and I experience when we don't have hope and when we don't have the assurance of the acceptance acceptance of God. You see, to be forsaken is not some abstract thing. Righteousness brings about blessing. And here was Jesus under a curse in the hands of those who desired his life. They beat him, they mocked him, and they crucified him. And we've talked about this before. How Jesus knew when he was delivered over into the hands of his enemies, it was because God was removing his protection. God was forsaking Christ. This is not an abstraction. The very fact that he's crucified is the very shows the very truth of this saying. Psalm chapter 22 is a vivid prophecy of the crucifixion. If you were to read it, you'd see the details are the same. In Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, we have an idea of what this saying means. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And and the psalmist goes on to say, Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry out in the daytime, but you do not hear me. And in the night season, and I'm not silent, but you are. Why are you so far from helping me? Is that a true statement? When Jesus is dying upon the cross, Is God there helping him by taking him off the cross? No. Amid all the taunts and mockings and satanic temptations, the Psalm 22 shows to us that Jesus is praying silently to God and the heavens are silent. Yes, he was forsaken. God, this is what that means, God would not redeem him from the cross. God would not take him down from the cross. Why? Jesus says. Why have you forsaken me? The question is essentially, why am I here on the cross? And it's the most important question that any of us or anyone could ask. Why have you forsaken me? Why? Well, Jesus, the answer is, should be simple, shouldn't it? Because you're bearing 
the sin of the world. Because you've taken the place of sinners. Because you're exhausting our penalty there on the cross. And those who believe in you, you'll save them. This is why you are on the cross forsaken. Because you're bearing our sin. But why am I bearing sin? Why am I taking their place? Why am I exhausting their penalty? And the answer is, Jesus. Because there's no other way for men to be saved. If there was another way, then you wouldn't have been given this cup. You wouldn't have been forsaken. God would have done it another way. But there is no other way for men to be saved except you are forsaken on that cross. But why is there no other way? Why couldn't there be another way? Well, Jesus, you know this. Because God is a God of justice and wrath. And God will forsake and destroy sinners. If that wasn't true, then there would be no reason for Jesus to have died for our sins. If God is not a God who actually forsakes sinners, then there would be no reason why Jesus would have to be on that cross. God is a God of just wrath. Dear friends, do you believe that? I hope you all do. It's not a popular truth in our world. It's never been. But God is a God of real wrath who really will truly forsake sinners. And for that reason, Jesus had to die. Also, that is not the only thing that is the reason why Jesus is on the cross. Because if that were true, but God was not also this other thing, then Jesus wouldn't have died either. He wouldn't have been forsaken if God was not a God of love who loved sinners and did not want them to be forsaken. If God was not a God of love, Jesus would never have uttered those words. He would never have been on the cross. He would never have been mocked. He would never have been misunderstood. He would never have been beaten. He would never have come if God was not a God of love who doesn't want you and I to perish. Think about that for a moment this morning. That God does not want you to perish. Put your name in the blank. God does not want you. Put your name in the blank. He does not want you to perish. He does not want to forsake you, even though He's the kind of God who will, if you do not believe. He does not want you to perish, and so He, he sent His Son. And why is God like that? The answer, there is no answer at this point. Why is God a God of just wrath? Why is God a God of love for sinners? Why is Jesus forsaken on the cross? And at this point, there is no more answer. God is simply what He is. And He's always been. And it's for us now to just wonder in awe. That's what God is like. And that is what Jesus is revealing to us on the cross. Jesus uttered these words so that you and I would never have to. 
Did you know if he never uttered those words, then you would have had to uttered, why have you forsaken me? Because of your sin. Because there's no other way. And you didn't take it. Because I am a God of wrath. Because I'm a God of love who reached out to you and you rejected it. Well, why are you like that? Because I am who I am. Jesus uttered these words so that men would not have to. And let us thank God that he did that for us. Aren't you thankful that Jesus said those words so that you will never have to if you've believed? Ever. You'll never be forsaken if you've put your trust in Jesus and what he has done for you in that he bore your sin on the cross and that he was forsaken in your place. Thank God for that. But in verse 47, 48, and 49, we see that, that like so many people today, the men that were standing around that cross were absolutely out of touch with reality. Totally out of touch with it. He's calling for Elijah. He's not calling for Elijah. He's speaking the deepest truth out of the depth of his heart about the nature of who God is and the love that God has for us and the righteousness of God and that Jesus is bearing our sins and they think he's calling for Elijah. Elijah, get me off the cross. Totally out of touch with reality. Totally thinking the thoughts of man. Somebody runs up and offers Jesus a drink. R.T. France rightly points out this was offered as an act of kindness to which the others in the crowd mockingly objected that if any relief was to be given, it should be given by Elijah in response to Jesus' appeal. That's why they say, let the guy, don't give him any drink, let him alone. So somebody ran up and gave him a drink thinking he needed it. They were trifling. They had no idea what Jesus was doing. So many people today trifle and have no idea, are absolutely out of touch with the reality of God. But in verse 50, Jesus has now arrived at the end and all that is left for him now to drink is the nasty dregs at the bottom of the cup. Death. There's nothing left but death. In the Gospel of John, John tells us that right before Jesus cried out his last words. In his own mind, Jesus, quote, knew that all things were accomplished, unquote. There was nothing now left but death. Everything short of death had been accomplished. And now he was to die. And Matthew tells us he cried out again with a loud voice. And who can fathom this? Who can fathom what was going on in the mind of Christ when he cried out this last cry with a loud voice, the emotion, the feeling? And he yielded up the ghost because nobody took his life from him. But Jesus gave it willingly. He wasn't struggling to survive and all of a sudden something exploded inside his chest and he said, oh no, I'm gone. Jesus gave up his life. He laid it down. It is finished, John tells us, was that final cry. What was finished? Something has been finished. 
Something has been finished that you and I don't ever need to finish. It's been done. What has been done? We need to mark well the work of atoning for sin was finished. And for everyone who believes, sin is finished. Iniquity is history. The bringing in of everlasting righteousness that never goes away is accomplished. When you put your faith in the death of Christ, when you come to to God through Jesus Christ, and you realize that you are an unrighteous person, and that you are a sinner, and that you deserve to be forsaken, but you realize that God, who does not want to forsake you, has provided Christ to die the penalty that you deserve, and to take everything that you deserve, so that you don't have to, and you put your faith in that, then it is finished from that moment on, brothers and sisters. Sin is finished in your life. You have died to sin, and you no longer have to atone for your sins, You're no longer seen as a sinner in the sight of God. You are justified. God declares you to be righteous and blameless. You have an everlasting righteousness that can never go away without any spot or without any blemish. You stand before God from that moment forward. You never need to go to God to have your sins dealt with again. Do you believe that? Because if you don't, then it doesn't sound like you believe that it it was finished on the cross, that the issue of sin between you and God still has to be dealt with on a day-to-day basis with you and your relationship with God. On the cross, it was finished, and when you believe, that is true for you. You have died unto sin. God counts you as being dead. You are alive in Christ, a new creation, and you have nothing more to do with sin. That's amazing. And sadly, so many people fail to grasp the truth of it is finished. Look at what verse 51 says. And here we see, once again, what the death of Christ is all about. Shock of shocks. The veil was ripped from top to bottom by God and no man. What a shock that must have been for those hard-hearted priests who saw that happen. What a Passover this was proving to be. Charles Erdman says, this is the key to the mystery Why did Christ die? Why did the sinless one thus suffer? Why was the Son of God asked to endure this shame and agony and death? It was that he might bring us to the Father, that he might open for us a new and living way into the divine presence. It was that we might be justified by faith, that we might have peace with God, and might rejoice in the hope of his eternal glory. The new covenant had begun with the death of Jesus. The old covenant is now obsolete. When you put your faith in Christ, you are taken out of the old and you are put in to the new. What was the old covenant all about? 
What was the purpose of the Old Covenant? What was the Old Covenant meant to show you? The Old System served to show us our sin. The Old System served to show us our separation from God. No, you're not allowed to go near the presence of God. God is over there and you are over here and you are not allowed to go near God because you are a sinner. See, this whole temple, tabernacle system is meant to show you your sin and your need for an atonement. But the system itself never brought you that atonement, never brought you into close proximity with God. People remained distant from God and ever mindful of their sin ever mindful of the fact that they're unclean and they cannot approach God. And so God could not be known through the old system. God could not be enjoyed through the old system. You could not have true fellowship with God. You always were reminded of your distance because of your sin. But what is the new meant to show you? What is the new covenant meant to show you? What is the tearing of the veil speaking? The new has come. And mark this well. You do not have to wallow in your sinfulness. You do not have to get up in the morning and go throughout your day ever mindful of the distance between you and God. Ever mindful that I can't approach God because I'm a sinner. I can't come near to God. I can't enjoy God. I can't have fellowship with God. He's over there. I'm here because of my sin. But now, dear brothers and sisters, because of the new covenant, you can enjoy God and you can be mindful and you should be mindful and God wants you to be mindful of the righteousness that you now possess. You are righteous. And the new covenant with the teared veil is meant for you to think about the fact that I am righteous and there's no separation between me and God at all. I'm totally righteous. I don't need to think about God over there and I'm over here because of my sin. I am righteous with a clean conscience before God and can now draw near and know God and have fellowship with God and enjoy God and rejoice in God and know that he's rejoicing in me. And this is why, God, this is why Jesus died. And as long as you're living your life thinking I'm such a bad sinner and God's upset with me today and he's not happy with me today and I can't have really good fellowship with God today because of my sins, you are not appreciating what Jesus has done on the cross. Because Jesus died so that that mindfulness and that guilty conscience might be gone. And you might think, well, how can that guilty conscience and the mindfulness of my sin be gone when I still sin? Because the point here is that we do not approach God and we do not draw near to God because we stop sinning. Right? We don't appear before God clean and blameless because we are clean and blameless by our works, because our cleanliness and our righteousness and our blamelessness is not based upon our works. It could never be. It's based upon Christ and his death. And so those who believe are clean and blameless. So enjoy it, brothers and sisters, because you are that. And stop thinking that the old veil is still there because it's not. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews tells us what we can now do because the veil has been rent. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18, and the whole book of Hebrews is meant to show us that through the death of Jesus Christ, when we put our faith in him, we have a clean conscience before God and we can draw near 
And we ought to draw near with assurance and confidence and boldness because God sees us as blameless. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18. Now where forgiveness is, there is no more offering for sin. Jesus died and it is finished and there never needs to be another sacrifice for sin ever. And if you sin today, which you will, and if you sin tomorrow, which you will, you don't need to ever make that up because it's been done once and for all. You've been forgiven and there's no more need for sin. Verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, not by your own works, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, here's what you should do as a Christian. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our hope without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke one another unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. Here's the things we can do now. We can draw near. That simply and practically means what I've been saying, that every day you can enjoy your relationship with God and be mindful of the fact there's no separation between you and He whatsoever because sin is a non-issue. Draw near. How? With confidence and assurance. Confidence and assurance. Confidence in the cross of Christ, in the blood of Christ, and assurance that God has accepted you. Hold fast your hope. Don't let anybody ever come to you and tell you otherwise and tell you that, no, you can't just do that. You have to do other things. You have to add to what Christ has done. And he says, let us meet together and encourage one another in this truth. All the more as the day of the complete and full revelation of these things is about to come. And provoke one another to love and good deeds. And love and good deeds because of our thankfulness to God. Jesus died for this. If you are not drawing near with confidence and assurance and holding fast to your hope and meeting together with the saints and being encouraged and be provoking each other love and good deeds, then we are living beneath that which Christ wants us, where Christ wants us to live when he died on the cross for us. He died for this. And all of these things we can do because of him. Now in closing this morning, we see that there are many other things that happened when Jesus died. The moment he died, there was an earthquake. Tombs were ripped open. Dead people came alive. But when the Gentile, when the Gentile centurion saw all this, he confessed that truly this was the Son of God. And we too 
though removed from this moment by roughly 66 generations, can and must likewise confess that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus the one who died, the one who rose. We, like everyone who has ever lived before, we need to trust in this sacrifice of the Son of God with an understanding, realizing this man was the Son of God. All the mockers said, if he was the Son of God, let him come off the cross. Hold on a second. He was the Son of God, and that's why he was on the cross, dying for us. We need to confess this and believe it, because if we do, we won't be like the grass who perish, but God will make us a forest of oaks of righteousness who have eternal life. The death of Christ is the most famous death in the history. It is the most famous death of eternity, because for all eternity, will be celebrating it. It's the deepest, most meaningful, and most important reality that there is. As John Engel James said, it is the food of our souls, it is the manna from heaven, it is the bread of life. When we contemplate the death of Christ, we have peace. When we live in its light, we have purpose. And if you have eaten of the bread, you are blameless and righteous because it is finished for you. And you will live with God forever and with all the saints who have believed of all generations forever, world without end, all because of him. Let's pray. Lord, the only thing that we can do in response to this is just wonder and be amazed and draw near and enjoy you. And I thank you for the death of Christ. And I just pray that this morning you would fill everyone here with understanding. You would give them your thoughts you would take away man's thoughts and you would fill us all with wonder and thankfulness at the death of Christ. And Lord, I pray for every believer here that you would help them to see that it is finished and that, they have, that sin isn't on issue in, your, in their life in that sin doesn't separate them from you anymore and that you don't even see them as a sinner anymore but as righteous. Fill your saints with assurance and confidence. And Lord, if there's anyone here that is not believing, I pray that you'd save them today and that they wouldn't delay realizing that the flower may fall at any time. Lord, thank you for this precious time together. And may we contemplate you with all of our hearts as we take communion. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.